as Joel just said, uh, the Bible reading is James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great, it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Thanks for that reading, Brad. Uh, my name's Rod. If you're new or visiting or I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you along tonight. Uh, let me say before we get into this passage that uh, I'm going to sp speak um, directly at Christians tonight for the large part about how we're to live, what God calls us to do in terms of our speech. It should flow from our faith in Jesus. If you're not a believer here tonight, I want to encourage you, though. It's not that I'm ignoring you at all, but I want you to listen in to hear how God expects his people to respond in this area of their life. And I hope and pray that uh, you will be encouraged to see what God calls his people to and that you might respond as well in turn. But let me pray for us um, as we come to God's word. Ask for his help as we look at this passage together. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather here tonight. We thank you that your word is powerful, uh, that you've entrusted it to us so that you might correct us, train us, rebuke us, you might grow us in righteousness for your sake if we have placed our faith in your Son who brings us into relationship with you. And we pray that as we think about this important topic of our speech tonight, that you would give us clarity, that you'd help us to think hard uh, about our own life, uh, that you might um, yeah, challenge us afresh in this important area. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember about the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria. It happened on February the 7th, 2009. It was the worst bushfire in Australia's history in terms of loss of life. 173 people died in that bushfire. 
over 400 were injured, 450,000 hectares were destroyed, um, over 2,000 homes uh, destroyed as part of that. And despite uh, these incredible stats, you would think they'd been little prepared for the day, but in fact, in preparation for what they knew were going to be extreme fire conditions, Victorian uh, firefighters had been assembled that morning and three and a half thousand firefighters were on deck as the day began. Now, they knew they were going to be battling worst case conditions. Um, it was over a hundred kilometer hour winds. Um, temperatures would soar that day and meet huge records right across Victoria. Melbourne itself had 46.4 degrees Celsius. It was the highest ever recorded temperature for a capital city in Australia. 100 kilometer hour winds, 46 degree temperatures, humidity dropped to 6%. So no moisture at all in the air, extreme wind and heat conditions. As many as 400 fires broke out on that day in Victoria, many of them from clashing power lines, but a lot of them sadly were deliberately lit deliberately lit and with such weather conditions of course it only took a spark a single flame it's amazing when you think about it I mean a single flame that you might have on a candle in a room you might easily be able to snuff out with your own fingers but that same spark can start an inferno that is so uncontrolled you cannot imagine the power of it you know, they had struggles um, trying to identify some of the 173 bodies afterwards because the temperatures in the midst of that inferno, they estimated, reached 1,200 degrees Celsius. One spark, a few hours later, 1,200 degrees Celsius, 173 dead. It seems amazing. Something so small can have such a massive, uncontrolled impact. Well... It leads us to our big question tonight because, you see, the issue is our speech can have the same power. It seems so small to us, just a throwaway line, just one word that we made to a friend, and yet the powerful impact that can follow. And so the big question I want us to consider tonight is why is our speech important? Why is it so important to God? And the first answer uh, to that question, the first reason is because words do have great impact. Words have impact, enormous impact. It's like a single spark. A single word can seem just so insignificant to us, but have a look at what James says in verses 5 to 6. James 3, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great fire, a forest, is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Well, James here in verses 5 and 6 is getting to the end of three um, graphic illustrations that he's offering in terms of the power of something small having massive impact. He started with talking about a bit in the mouth of a, in the mouth of a horse. He then talked about the rudder in a ship. Such small parts can control such big things. And then he gets to the tongue and talks about the tongue in comparison to spark and a, a great fire. And he wants to say here that the tongue also, such a small part in our body, can set the whole course of our life like a bit or a rudder or a spark. It has the potential to direct lives, even destroy lives. Now I think as soon as we hear that we think, oh, 
or at least I do, it just seems over the top at some level. Is it really going to have that big an impact? We protest, you know, our words, we didn't mean what we said. Surely it couldn't have affected the person that much. It's just a small thing, we say. We don't have an appreciation of just how our words can engulf us and sometimes even turn our lives upside down. And the problem for us is that taming the tongue is just seen as unnecessary in our society today. I mean, the bar just lowers and lowers all the time. If you watch TV, you know, anything seems to go, especially after a certain time at night in terms of the language that's spoken. And I'm not just talking about the swearing or otherwise, but just the content, the kind of uh, innuendo and so forth that's just thrown in everywhere. Taming the tongue has just seemed to be an unimportant thing. And it's almost as if people in our society are shocked when their words backfire and something big does flow from it. One loose sentence, one critical word, one callous comment, and suddenly an inferno can be produced. Look, we're at state of origin time at the moment, and some of you uh, may be rolling your eyes and thinking, that's boring. Uh, Queensland versus New South Wales in rugby league again. Haven't we given up in New South Wales? Queensland win it every year. Um, but a few years ago, 2010, in the build-up to the first game, uh, Andrew Johns, who's a legend from New South Wales, uh, was there helping the team in their camp before the first match, trying to G up the troops as it were, come on, we can beat Queensland. And he was giving them sort of a rundown of some of the danger players, that obviously they would have known themselves in the Queensland team. And he was singling out Greg Inglis, one of the star players for Queensland. And he had some colourful comments that he made about them, uh, calling him a black so-and-so. This was in a private meeting behind closed doors, but amongst the playing group of New South Wales was a man named Tamana Tahu, himself a player of colour, not Aboriginal in background as Greg Inglis, but nonetheless took great offence at what John said. Well, he went outside of the meeting, reported to the media what had been said, said he was so unhappy that he was leaving the camp. He went home. He left the team. It's a huge blow-up about it. Andrew Johns was booted out of his position as an assistant coach for the Blues, Greg Inglis came out in the media and said, I want this guy banned from all his opportunities at Channel 9, take him out of all his things. Parramatta, who had him as one of their assistant coaches at the time, fired him and said, we don't want him at the club. This huge furor blew up, and it was like John's immediately, at least to begin with, could not see what all the fuss was about. A couple of lines, I wasn't even saying it out loud. This was in you know, private to just the players, and yet this huge firestorm followed. And he did admit in the weeks that followed, it had had a huge impact in, on him and his family. But so many people were upset with him that they'd reduced their view of him. A few words, one phrase, have massive impact on a person's life. Devastating effects on another person's life too. You see, the first part of verse 6 says literally that the tongue is a fire which is appointed among our members as a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of our existence. That is, if you like, the tongue becomes a channel by which all the evil of the world uh, that we're absorbing all the time comes to expression in us. You might say, really? <laughs> is that, uh, that's a big claim. Well, Jesus said the same in Matthew 15. Jesus said, what comes out of our mouth makes a person unclean because our mouth expresses our heart. And in our hearts, Jesus said, are found evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Matthew 15. 
And so all these things that are around us that we imbibe so often can find expression in our lives and so often in our words. And so they find their way out. They just somehow have to bubble to the surface. And arguably, no other part of our body wreaks so much havoc. Such a small thing, our tongue. Such impact. And where does this destructive potential come from? Well, James says in this passage, from hell itself. Literally, the word here is Gehenna. That's referring to a valley in the valley of Hinnom, just outside uh, Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And there they had a rubbish dump. And to get rid of the rubbish, it was just a constant fire. So this fire was like an eternal fire, just burning up the rubbish outside the city. And it became a picture, a metaphor for hell, the worst place you could possibly be. And James is trying to say to us that it's the devil that inspires, the father of all lies that produces in people the speech and all of its impact. Here is the source of such language and its so often terrible effects. Now, James doesn't really elaborate in this passage on the ways in which our tongue can unleash that destructive potential. But he's constantly echoing the Old Testament as he walks through this book. And so I think we can think of some of the passages in Proverbs, which uh, we heard one of from Joel at the start. You know, they're always picking up in Proverbs things like lying, gossiping, boasting. Even in this passage, did you notice verse 5? Here's the one that is mentioned by James, boasting, the boasting of the tongue. I want you to think just a moment uh, about the issue of rumors. Now, somebody just says something about someone, maybe deliberately to have an effect, a negative effect in their life, or maybe they've just heard something secondhand and they start passing it on as if it's gospel truth, not knowing whether it's going to have an impact or not. It can have enormous, irreversible harm, unsubstantiated false rumors. They're flying around everywhere, and with technology today, they get spread really quickly. Back in 1998, there was started a really big one on the internet, um, which brought in two very famous figures in America. You see, there was this uh, rumor that went around that was spread via an email, and the email would come to your inbox saying about the fashion designer Tommy Hilfiger, uh, that he had appeared on Oprah Winfrey's show, and that he had said if he knew that black people or Asians were going to wear his clothes, he wouldn't have made such nice clothes, and therefore everyone should boycott this fashion designer. The only problem was Tommy Hilfinger had never said such a thing at all. In fact, Oprah Winfrey, this became so big in America that a year later in 1999, she made a big statement on her show about it. She said, the people that are saying all this stuff and saying they heard it, they saw it, it's nonsense. He has never appeared on my show. I have never met this guy. He did not come on and say these things. But it didn't stop people believing somehow that still, no, she was covering up for him or something. Rumors that spread and just cannot be stopped. I think we all know from bitter experience that the statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, is just not true. In fact, the opposite is so often the case. We can repair the broken bones and the things that happen from sticks and stones, but the impact of somebody's words can stick with us for decades. Stick with us for decades. It's such a small thing, we think, at the time, but it can direct a person's life. And our problem is that we don't see how big an issue it is. Indeed, we don't see how hard it is to actually tame our tongue. I mean, James wants to say in this passage that people cannot tame their tongue. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Verses 7 and 8 again. 
all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed or have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, the word animal in verse 7 could refer to any animal, but we get this nice little fourfold division here. So it seems he's applying it particularly to land mammals. And the allusion is right back to Genesis 1, God's creation at the start. And James is making this universal assertion about the natural world. You know, his point is by way of contrast. Humanity in its intellect and ability has managed to tame every known animal in the world in one way or another. And yet, it cannot tame its own tongue. How can it be? In verse 8, we're unable, literally no one among people can do it. So difficult is to control our mouths. So often are we given to lying, to the slanderous word. So prone to having our mouth open when it should be shut. That we don't see the impact we're having on those around us. And they probably will never tell us often the impact our words have had. Our friends may be deeply hurt by something and we never even hear back that that was the case. This restless evil, James is saying, is always likely to break out. Now, it just seems so bleak and black, the picture, doesn't it? Is he saying that we can never do anything right? We never say one word that's helpful or upbuilding? No, he's not saying that. But what he is saying, and we need to hear it, is that the tongue so often speaks evil. So often. In this life, the complete taming of our tongue is impossible. Really, James equates it to the sinless perfection this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. One day, if we've placed our f trust in Jesus, we will enter heaven where we will no longer struggle with sin. And sinless perfection, including our speech, will come. But until that day, we will not see it. And we certainly won't see it in our speech. Now, does that mean we give up? It's all so hard. Uh, we can never reach the standard that God is requiring of us. And so we don't worry about our speech then. We just go along like everybody else, it seems. No, James is not saying that either. No, we're to persevere. We're seeking to live in a way that responds to God's grace to us. And we can advance a long way in our speech, grow in our ability to glorify God with what we say, rather than denigrate and pull down others. Well, there's my first reason or answer to the question, why is your speech important? A second one that follows from that point, if our words are so powerful, if they can have such an impact, then we need to realize that our words reveal our hypocrisy. Our words can pull down our example as a believer if we've placed our trust in Jesus. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. James says from verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. See, James points to our inconsistency. You know, the hypocrisy of singing praises, as we've already done in this service, and then perhaps tomorrow cursing somebody. You know, we're driving along and somebody cuts in on us on the road and we're jumping into a whole stream of expletives perhaps about how could they do this? 
And James is saying, how can that happen? How can you be singing praises to the God of the universe who made you to be in relationship with him? And then the next minute, you're like this. Inconsistent, hypocritical. Here is the instability, the restlessness of the tongue. And as he goes on, he points to how you don't get such mixed fruit in nature. If you have an olive tree, it produces olives. If you have a freshwater spring, it produces fresh water, not salt water. How can you be both? And yet we are. And it's the person who so often is trying to please God, or so they say, but at the same time is heavily influenced by the world's way, the world's culture, perhaps trying to fit in with people around them, to be cool, to be accepted. And we just slip into this loose language, and then we catch ourselves thinking, how is it that I'm speaking like this? Such a person is trying to combine their faith and obedience to Jesus, perhaps, with denigrating people made in God's image. It's just they cannot go together. Praising or blessing of God, singing praises to him as we've had, praying to him is one of the highest forms of language, not the highest that a human can have to express the relationship that God wants with us, that he made us for in the very beginning. While cursing has got to be one of the lowest. Now, I think, you know, in American parlance, cursing is often just, you know, swearing. Oh, you know, he cursed about this and it's supposed to be just, you know, because he was swearing about such and such a person. But really in the Bible under the Old Covenant, the curse was far more than that. It was more than just abusive language. It called on God to cut off a person from any blessing in their life. It's to wish them harm. I wish this person cursed. Indeed, you know, the outcome of that would be that they would be sent to hell, that they would never know God's blessing in their life. I curse this person. Well, Jesus actually prohibited his disciples from doing such a thing, unsurprisingly. He said to them, if somebody comes up and curses you like that, you turn around and bless them. You bless them in response. Jesus has very strong words on our language, and James, his half-brother, picks it up and reflects that back to us in his letter here. And James' obvious summary from this section is, you can't have both. This should not be. It should not be. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm a bit of a fan of carpool karaoke. I, I like um, James Corden, um, the funny bits at least. And I'm not really a big fan of a lot of the artists he gets on. Uh, I used to be in a rock band and played guitar, and so I think good music ended in the 80s. And so, you know, I'm not a really big fan of Ed Sheeran, but, you know, what I find interesting about watching these kind of things is that time after time, it's not whether this artist can sing their own songs, because, hey, we'd hope they could if they'd recorded them, uh, Britney did struggle, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's not about whether they can get it word perfect and sing their song in the car with him, but it's the revealing comments that come out in between as he questions them. They have a real talk in between the songs. And so often, what comes out of their mouths is just a whole lot of swear words, a whole lot of sexual innuendo. And I go away at the end of watching one of these, and my kids like this, that's what's got me onto it. And I find that I've just lowered my view of this person. I wish I hadn't seen the video. And what I find is so jarring is somebody like Ed Sheeran who can sing one minute this lovely love song that's got very clean lyrics talking about his concern and long-lost love of some girl. And then the next minute, he's sharing some story 
through James Corden about how he sees love as just about sexual conquest. And there's all this innuendo and comments. And I walk away thinking, what is going on? Can no one see the contradiction of this kind of discussion and seeing back and forth? And I go away having a very low view of the artist, sadly. Well, I want to say to you, our speech matters. How many times has your Christian witness been undermined by something you said? The person knows you're a believer, and maybe it's a good friend of yours who's known you for many years, and then they hear you speaking in a certain way at work or in the sporting team. I know somebody kicks you in the shins at soccer, you go down, and suddenly the words don't seem to match the profession of faith that this person has heard from you. And the gospel witness is maligned. They walk away thinking, well... You know, that guy calls himself a Christian, but look, I hear the way he talks, and really I'm not so sure that this guy's fair income at all. I don't know about this, Jesus, because when I see his followers, I don't see it. Well, it's happened too many times, hasn't it, to count. Our speech matters. Else we present ourselves as hypocrites and we undermine, we malign the gospel. So often it's our gossip or slander or lying or some other failing, and it just brings down our witness before God. Why does our speech matter? Firstly, because our speech matters because it has such impact, whether we see it or not. Secondly, because it has such an impact, it has a great effect on people's uh, view of our sincerity and our faith. It shows us, reveals us to be a hypocrite if it's so out of line, so jarringly different from our said faith. Thirdly, a third important point, is if those two things are true, then our speech matters because our holiness and our service of God depends on it. Because surely if we're shown to be a complete hypocrite in this area, then we're not growing in our holiness, and that's going to limit what we can do in terms of our service of God. So I've left this until last, even though it's the starting point of James's section here. And the reason I've done that is because so often, as we've seen the last few weeks, is that his key idea, his key principle and application comes right at the start of the passage. And then he unpacks examples and analogies that follow. So that's why we're finishing here in verses 1 and 2. So notice what he says at the beginning. Not many of you, and this is like the conclusion, but it's at the start. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. You notice the principle in verse 2. Effectively says, we all sin in many ways, because that word stumble is all nearly always used in a metaphorical sense in the Bible. It means to uh, fall short, to sin, to make a mistake. And so he's effectively saying, we all sin in many ways. This is the Bible's summary of humanity, that we fall short of God's perfect standards. And one of those many ways that we fall short is in our speech. Now, the word, our speech here, is most difficult area for our battle for godliness. If a person could avoid sin, James is saying, in their speech they would be a perfect person because if you could hold your tongue perfectly throughout your life, you'd have no issue in any other area. Saying, if I can mix our anatomy in this metaphor, it's our Achilles heel. It's our weak point, our mouth. Our tongue 
is where we so often get it wrong. And so we've got to be so aware of this. Our weak point, we've got to acknowledge it or else we underestimate the problem. And we can turn this principle in verse 2 into an application. And that's that. If our tongue is the weak link, then a good litmus test for the genuineness of your faith or the progress in your faith, your growth in godliness, is how you're going in your speech. So if you were to ask me, well, how do I know how I'm growing in my godliness, whether I'm making progress after the last 12 months, what do your friends say about the way you speak? That would be a good question. might be a scary question, but it's an important question. You know, on our we've got to examine our words. We really need a weekly stock take, you know, a daily assessment. Now, how could you help yourself in that as you think about applying this in your own life? I want to say we don't often hear it ourselves. Maybe we do. If um, our conscience is sharp enough and God's spirit is convicting us, then surely we will hear it ourselves. But sometimes we overlook it. We downplay it. Uh, as humans, we're good at justifying just about anything. But our friends will hear it. And maybe if you've got friends that are true friends that will pull you up, they'll be able to say to you, look, um, you know, you said such and such the other week to that person. Uh, that was pretty cutting. Um, why did you do that? In fact, you do that pretty regularly. Have you noticed that? Things like that, to keep each other accountable. Have you got somebody in your life that's doing that? Maybe you're in a prayer triplet. Maybe you meet one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Maybe your Bible study is good at doing that as a whole group. I think the bigger the group, though, the harder it is to do, the less accountability usually. Much harder to keep each other accountable at 6 p.m. service on a Sunday night. Much easier one-on-one. -on -one. We've got to take it seriously. Hold each other accountable so that we grow in our Christian walk. The stakes are just too high. And Jesus himself pointed this out over and over. One such place is in Matthew 12, 37, where Jesus actually said, it's part of how God the Father will judge us. By your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Well, that's a pretty good summary of why it's a barometer for our Christian faith. Christians who are being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit within their lives should be seeing change in this area of their life in particular. You know, if Christians who are being transformed can't demonstrate any growth in purity of speech, there's something missing, there's something lacking. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I made a confession of faith when I was about nine years old, and it was a real struggle when I got to high school after that. I was at church every Sunday, um, I would have called myself a Christian, certainly, but I went to a pretty rough high school and I was around a bunch of friends who thought nothing of punctuating every sentence, if not every phrase, with a swear word, and lots of the topics of conversation were unhelpful. And I found myself by about year eight really struggling with this and lapsing into their kind of conversation, finding myself swearing, finding myself being interested in talking about things that I knew were unhelpful altogether. And it was a real battle with my faith over those years, year 8, 9, and 10. I got to year 11, and by God's grace and his kindness, my cousins invited me to a Christian camp up at Burundong Dam. I was 17 years old. I went to that camp, Easter camp, and I remember being so challenged with the gospel that I'd heard a hundred times before. I recommitted my life that weekend. It was a real turning point for me. 
And one of the biggest things that I realized had to change if I was serious, because what I thought was I'd become someone that loved the idea of Jesus being a savior, but he clearly wasn't Lord in my life. And that just could not go. If I'd received Jesus as savior, he was now in charge. And so one of the areas that had to change was my speech. And so I was determined, and I'd changed schools by this time, which helped. I could make a fresh start, as it were, with a new group of friends. But nonetheless, I had to work now on my speech. I didn't want to be that person I'd become over the previous three years. And what I saw was that God's grace, God's kindness to me in Jesus should teach me to say no to ungodliness. Titus 2.11 If I've understood that Jesus died for my sin, then that means that I will now live a new life. It will lead to changes. I will say no to things. And one of the areas I have to change in is my speech. Well, praise God, there was some change from that point. But I want to come back to a second application from these first two verses. I think that's the first from verse 2. But if you look at verse 1, there's a quite explicit application, isn't there? James points out the scary truth uh, that those who hold teaching rules are going to be judged more strictly. Now, he's not just talking about pastors. Uh, I feel the weight of this is one of the most scariest verses in the new testament for me but if you're teaching in terms of leading a bible study group if you're teaching sunday school on a sunday morning if you're teaching at youth group on a friday night in any of more of these ways teaching scripture in a school then this word i want you to take it to heart this is just as much to you as it is to any pastor or elder who's in some office of teaching the bible we don't want to go into those positions if we have not made real progress on the taming of our tongue i mean it follows doesn't it i mean we can get the logic of that pretty simply if we're going to be speaking proclaiming god's word and yet we're speaking at other times like we don't know the very gospel that has saved us how can that be it's like the spring and salty water coming the fresh and salty water coming from the same spring it's hypocrisy it's going to drag down the gospel and so james says it can't be if somebody's going to be in a position of teaching the Bible, they better be seeking to make progress and godly choices in the way they speak. Now, is James trying to say, well, nobody will dare want to teach the Bible or do anything because no one's speech is perfect. And so if we took that to heart, everyone would be scared of saying anything. I don't think he's trying to do that to us. It's not like we've got to achieve our salvation by works. We've already just seen last week in chapter 2 that it's by faith faith that we are saved it's all about jesus and not about our performance but that faith will be a faith that works it will lead to changes there'll be obvious examples in our life not least in our speech and so if you're in a position where you're ever teaching the bible take this word to heart it's so important teaching goes beyond the office of pastor teacher anybody who is holding out god's word needs to think hard about this verse and I think what he's saying, and we'll see in chapters 3 and 4 that follow in the next few weeks, that I think some of the quarreling that was happening amongst the people that he's writing to was because the people who are unfit for the teaching role were in that role and creating problems. Character is just so important. You know, you read Titus 1, you read 1 Timothy 3, you read about the qualifications that are listed for an elder, and it's all about character. It's not about their brilliant skill or their eloquence in saying something. It's whether they're living a godly life. There's only one skill named on the list, and that is just to be able to teach. But everything else is about character, one of which is our speech. 
And so if we don't have right character, I think the flip side to that point is that we're disqualified from the role. Indeed, if we're in the role, and this is a big problem in our life, then people should be tapping us on the shoulder and saying, I don't think you should be teaching God's word. It's serious. Consistent failure in our speech, nobody's perfect, but consistent failure in our speech as a teacher would require removal. Our words can disqualify us. There's a very famous example outside of the church. One of the greatest political removals of all time was from a few brief conversations. I know if you saw the movie back in 2008, Frost Nixon, the story about Watergate scandal in the United States, how President Richard Nixon, the first and only president forced to resign from his position, condemned by his very own words. Uh, if you don't know the story, uh, he famously said at one point in the investigations, I am not a crook. Unfortunately, he was uh, because he had organized the wiretapping of the Democratic, Republic, uh, Democratic Party, the opposing party. He was a Republican. Their hair, uh, campaign headquarters was in the Watergate Hotel. He had that wired up so he could listen into their plans for the election and so forth. Well, eventually this came out. He was pretty good at stonewalling. He thought never would the track lead back to him, although he'd ordered that to be done. For 12 months, he stonewalled, made all kinds of excuses. They couldn't quite lay a finger on him. But eventually, people worked out that they'd put in a recording system in the Oval Office and many of the other offices <laughs> recently. And so everything that had been said during his presidency had been recorded that was in that building. And so they subpoenaed the tapes to the court. And in amongst all the conversations that had been had in the Oval Office was a conversation he had uh, where he said on June 23, 1972, uh, instructions about how to cover up the problem. His advisor was told to tell the CIA and the FBI to back off. They just have to drop it. That is, drop the court case. Well, with his own words, they managed to condemn him in the court. He was impeached and he was the first and only president forced to resign. He had dishonored the honors. He's the office, his own words, had disqualified him. I don't want to cast aspersions. I think we're getting into similar ground in the United States. <laughs> How much more can our words disqualify us from the honor of teaching God's word? In whatever context that might be. Let me leave you some questions with what's come out of tonight. Have you underestimated the difficulty of taming your tongue? Are you somebody who would say, no, it's not an issue for me. I'm always on top of that. Well, praise God if that's so. Um, but if you're quick to say that, I'd wonder. It's better to question ourselves, to be very careful of ourselves rather than being confident. We need to constantly examine our words. Uh, they're a barometer for our Christian faith. The Bible often want to say to us that um, temptation comes to us through our eyes. What we see leads to a lot of our temptation. But it'll also say that most of the sin that comes out of us comes out of us via our mouth. The mouth is the gateway to so much of our sin. Jesus stated it this way as we conclude. Luke 6 verse 45. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks.
It's a telling sentence, isn't it? See, I started with the question, why is our speech important? And we've seen that our speech is important because, one, it has a massive impact. Whether we see it or not, it has a massive impact. Two, therefore, it's liable to make us a complete hypocrite in the eyes of others if our speech does not match up with our confession of faith. And thirdly, we need to realize, as we've just seen, that this means that our godliness is dependent on growth in this area, amongst other things, and our service of God will be limited by the amount in which we get on top of this area of our life. You see, perfection is out of reach this side of heaven. God's not expecting you to be perfectly perfect in your speech day by day. To do what Ephesians 4 and 5 says is to always be upbuilding in your words, never tearing down. To always be positive, always praising God, encouraging his people. That is our aim. Sadly, we will fall short. But if our life is marked by consistent failure in our speech, we need to take stock. We need to worry about that. We have to grow in this crucial area, and we do so in response to God's grace to us. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to earn my way. I'm not doing this because uh, Christians are do-goders that are trying to stand out from those around them who don't worry about their speech. I'm doing this because God's grace has come to me and I understand the forgiveness that I'm offered in Jesus and I realize that I've been placed under the lordship of Jesus and he calls me to lead a new life. And if I'm to live for him, with him truly in charge, then this is a key area that I'll address. Our words matter. Why? Because our words matter to God. And if they matter to him, they must, they must matter to us. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. That James is just so straight with us about the importance of our words. Help us not to look on this subject lightly. Uh, so often, certainly our society does, and even believers can too. But Lord, help us to respond to your gospel of grace that should teach us to say no to ungodliness, particularly in this area. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again in a moment and there'll be um, a question time following communion. Thanks, Rod. Uh, we've been reminded um, of God's grace extended to us in Jesus and how we're to live in response to that. But let's consider how we can let this truth really permeate our lives, our entire lives, um, and particularly as we're thinking about our speech. Um, let's uh, be prayerful in, in how we respond to this. Uh, please join with us in our next song.